You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Let's pray. Father, we come again to your word, to hear your words, to learn from you, to trust you, but most of all, to see Christ, to see his glory, his majesty, his character, his beauty, to see all that he commands of us and for us. And so God, may we receive your word by faith, trusting in every single bit of it. In your name we pray, amen. It has been rightly said that the aim of all Christian preaching is to show, to put on display, the glory and the majesty of Christ. It is that from every place in Scripture, we would see him. Charles Spurgeon famously said that when he prepares to preach, um, he starts with the text he's been assigned and then makes a beeline um, for the person of Jesus. The trouble is that much Christian preaching in our day fails to do this. It fails um, to do that primary task. It's far too often a kind of therapeutic preaching, a kind of preaching designed to not not put Christ at the center, to not lift our gaze um, um, off our own navels and out of the um, out of the troubles of our own lives to behold the glory of Jesus. But far too often, it's merely a kind of um, a, a recentering of ourselves, our feelings, our troubles, our desires as the centerpiece, as the main idea, as the primary problem in the universe. Or, this is far more often true in our circles in the Reformed Church, um, there is a kind of focus on Christ in merely a sort of theological sense. And so you'll get heady theology, you'll get beautiful typology, um, you'll get Um, a a kind of theological treatise about Christ that stays so far above the trees, so far above the realities of our day-to-day life that that it, it never touches the ground. But our call is to behold and to believe all of Christ. To see all of him. To trust everything that he said, to obey in every area of life, everything that Christ speaks to, everything from how we raise our children, to what must we believe to be saved, to what does marriage look like, how do we treat one another in, on a Monday afternoon when you're tired, Are you, if you don't have work tomorrow you won't be tired, but Tuesday afternoon when you get home from work and you're tired and your spouse is doing the thing. You know the thing. Don't act like your spouse doesn't have a thing. They're doing that thing. Um, From those things to theological things like what must we believe in order to be saved to things like politics. Yes, politics. That all of it belongs to Christ. Christ is Lord of everything. 
Christ is Lord of heaven and earth and everything in between. There is not one square inch that does not belong to him. So to preach Christ, to believe Christ, to obey Christ does not merely mean trusting him in your heart for um, good feelings. It means trusting him for the forgiveness of, of your sins, yes. But it also means believing him when he says this is how the world should be ordered or this is how governments should be ordered or this is how you raise your kids or this is how you speak to one another when you're irritable and angry. We are to preach, to believe, to trust, to obey all of Christ and everything that he's Lord of, which is everything. So we come to a text today that covers the gamut. There is for us um, a model given, taken by a number of different reformers. They saw in this text um, not merely an historical event, not merely a description, but also a prescription of principles um, that should govern the, the life of states. We also see a sovereign God acting decisively to save a people, to redeem a people, to rescue a people, to give a people influence. We see God acting mightily to keep his promises to his children. We see all of it. So after now a long journey, beginning in 1 Samuel, with Hannah's prayers, promises given to David, the illustrious beginning of Saul, let us now consider all of Christ. So where are we? Chapter 4, Ishbosheth has died. Um, David has been anointed king of Judah, one of the 12 tribes, but not all of Israel. Um, Ishbosheth was uh, crowned king over the other 11 tribes, and then a civil war broke out, instigated by Joab and Abner. That civil war has gone on for seven long years. Lots of people have died. Lots of people in the tribe across the way. There were people in that tribe that killed family members of members of the tribe just up the hill. This has been a bloody civil war. It's been a civil war fought between brothers, between those who are fellow citizens, fellow recipients of the promises of God given to Abraham. Um, this has been ugly. But Abner is dead. Ishbosheth is dead. Abner's murderers have been treated justly. Ishbosheth's murderers have been treated, Abner's murders have not been treated justly. I messed that up. Abner's murders have been publicly denounced, but not justice executed on them. But Ishbosheth's murders have been treated justly at the end of chapter 4. And now you've got 11 tribes in a bit of, of chaos. There's no leadership. We don't know what's going to, what's going to happen. So the question is, will there be more war? Will there be more disintegration? And it's important to recognize that here in chat, the beginning of chapter 5, we've officially arrived at a point where everything has come full circle. We had great promise with the birth of Samuel. 
the reestablishment of worship, the reestablishment, uh, or the beginning of the establishment of what would become the kingdom. We had great promise with, um, with the anointing of Saul and his installation as king. His beginning was a good beginning. You remember? It's oftentimes, often easy to forget given the end of his reign. But all the troubles that we saw at the very beginning of Samuel seemed um, to, to be getting better. That God seemed to be establishing the kingdom, uniting all the 12 tribes again under a, a righteous king, um, uh, reestablishing the worship of Yahweh um, among God's people. Um, all of these things um, got going, and now we're at this place um, where the Philistines are back in the land. They're back um, uh, uh, behaving badly among God's people, defeating Israel in a humiliating way beheading Saul and Jonathan. Worship has not been established any longer. The 12 tribes that were united have now splintered. What's going to happen? Let's look at what actually happens. Four things as we work our way through this chapter. First, the elders from the 11 tribes come together and they come to David and they install him, they anoint him, and they install him as king over all of Israel. They give two reasons why they're going to do this. Um, three reasons, really. First, that when Saul was king, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. This is kingly language. This is what kings do. They lead the people in and out. So they're recognizing that even when Saul was king, um, at some point, you actually became the one who was functionally king. Um, you were the one who was actually leading the people out in battle and leading them back in after victory. Um, you've been doing this job already. Second, um, you are our bone and our flesh. This is um, familial language. So first, you've already been doing this job. Two, um, you are our brother. This is massive reconciliation, given that this is all coming out of a bloody civil war. We belong together. We belong to one another. So we are brothers. And then third, a recognition that God had promised to David that he would be a shepherd king over all of Israel. And so, given those reasons, they anoint David as king over Israel. The text makes an important point that, they, that David writes down a covenant, a sort of constitution. This is the second time in Samuel that this has happened. Um, and you might ask the question, why, given that you already have the law of God, why is a constitution necessary? Why is another covenant necessary? It would help us to go back and rethink what happened with Samuel as he installs Saul. Um, Israel had come to Samuel and demanded from him that he give them a king. And you'll remember the phrase that was used repeatedly in that chapter, like the other nations. If you'll remember in Deuteronomy, in the law itself, it gives provision for a king and what that king should do and, and warning that king what he should not do. So a monarchy, a king, ruling over um, all of God's people is not forbidden by God's law. In fact, there's reason to believe based on its placement in the law of God, that this was where the history of Israel was intended to go from the very, very beginning. This is what God wanted and knew would eventually happen. 
the trouble with the people coming to Samuel and demanding a king wasn't that they were demanding a king, is that they were demanding a king like the other nations. In other words, we want a king, but we don't want a Deuteronomic king. We don't want a king who rules according to the law of God. We want a king that functions like the other kings do. In the Deuteronomic law, the king functioned under the authority of God. He functioned within bounds, what he was actually given authority over. He wasn't given authority over everything. He was given authority over very specific things. And he was to do so conscious and aware of the authority of God over him as dictated by the law of God. And so when Samuel goes to give them a king, he warns them, if you, if you chase after a king like the other nations, it's going to go badly. He won't be constrained by the law of God. He will become a tyrant. And so Saul eventually, very, very quickly, does exactly that. But before, Saul, Samuel sets in place a covenant, uh, a constitution, if you will, um, that... that that tries to put in paper, articulated at this particular time, at this particular place, in these historical conditions, constraints on the rule of the king. The idea is we have the law of God, we love the law of God, and now you want a king? So let's articulate the limits placed upon a king as found in the law, but now applied to this specific place. This specific time. Saul does well for about 30 minutes. And then breaks out against all of it. But here we have, not Samuel, but David himself, the one becoming king. Who the text is going to tell us very, very quickly, uh, well, right in the middle of the chapter. That David knows that the Lord is establishing him. He's not establishing himself. That the Lord is establishing him. David himself writes a covenant. He articulates constraints on his own rule and how he's to rule. And notice the second thing that takes place here. Um, he's already been anointed by God through Samuel to be king over Israel. But it takes a second step. The people themselves have to anoint him and install him as king over them, as a, as a servant king, a shepherd king, over them. You, you actually see this kind of thing reflected uh, in, a, in a number of different modern ceremonies. Um, I was just thinking back to when Charles was ascended, when he ascended, when he was crowned. I'm trying to think of a cool English word. Um, his coronation, when he was coronated. He, he's anointed by, a, by the archbishop. Um, but then he's also confirmed and hailed as king by the people. Um, both of those things come into play for right rule. He, he's, he's receiving his authority from God. Um, and the people themselves are confirming that limited authority over them by hailing him as king. And so David now unites all 12 tribes as now king over all of Israel. God has finally established a king this time not a king merely chosen by the people 
but a king chosen by God and confirmed by the people. The civil war is over. Now, number two. What's the first thing David does? Starting in verse 6. Well, there's a city named Jerusalem. Perhaps you've heard of it. That city at this time is a neutral city. It doesn't belong to any of the 12 tribes. It belongs to the Jebusites. Um, the Jebusites don't belong to any of the 12 tribes. And so here is a neutral city. Um, it sits on a pronounced hill um, called Zion. Um, and he decides we're going to take the city. So he comes to the city. And the Jebusites, um, this isn't meant to be a mockery of the blind and the lame. It's meant to be trash-talking to David. And so in their trash-talk to David, they say to him, we don't even need to defend this place. We'll just put the blind and the lame up here because you can't take it from us. It was an incredibly difficult city to take. So David says, fine, we'll just go up and fight all the lame and the blind. Kind of spins their mockery. You can't even fight the lame and the blind. And so then David, it's kind of like a zinger. Um, those of you who are like 13 or 14 year old, um, this is a great kind of way to come at back, come back at people if they say, well, you're blind and lame. You say, well, well, I'll just beat the blind and the lame. Or you can't beat the blind and lame. It's like, well, I'll beat you. And um, David essentially says, well, well, I'll come up there and fight the blind and lame, I guess. And so uh, they come to Jerusalem, they surround Jerusalem, and uh, Chronicles tells us that Joab, uh, um, again, Joab's a, uh, he's an evil character, but he's an evil character who's smart and does some um, key things on behalf of David. Uh, he shivvies up a water pipe um, on the outside of the city, uh, gets men into the city, and they take the city. Um, and so uh, when it says here um, that David hates the blind and the lame, um, and the blind and the lame shall not come into the house, um, this is speaking of the Jebusites. It's speaking of the enemies of God's people. It's speaking of the enemies of God's king. Um, this is, by the way, a, a daft political move. Um, David doesn't establish um, the, the capital city over all of Israel um, uh, in his, and among his own tribe. He actually picks a city that belongs to none of the tribes, um, although it's near the tribe of Benjamin, which was Saul's tribe. Um, so that's it's doubly daft. Um, he, he, one, is putting it close to the Benjamites um, to kind of maybe appease some of their hurt pride as they no longer have one of their own as king over Israel. Um, and two, he, he doesn't put his base of operations in his hometown. He, he puts it um, in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, the third thing that happens, um, you have this uh, verse 11 and 12. Hiram, king of Tyre, there's a whole history that kind of goes forward from this point. Tyre is a Gentile nation. Um, Tyre does not belong to the covenant people of Israel. And yet, he, seeing um, that David is becoming greater and greater, seeing that the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of armies is with him, um, sends messengers to David, sends wood to David, sends carpenters to David, sends masons to David to build the king a house. So the nations see what God is doing, see the salvation that God has wrought for God's king. They see that God is exalting this king. They see that God is honoring this king. They see that God is with this king. So they say, we will honor this king too. We will serve this king too. So they send and contribute to 
the building of David's house. Here in verses 13 through 16, we have our latest iteration of the kind of breadcrumb dropping. That Not all is as it seems. Not everything's perfect. God is blessing David. God is um, caring for David. God is lifting up David. God is exalting David. God's about to fight on David's behalf. But David is still doing what Deuteronomy tells kings not to do. He's multiplying wives and children. There are two names in this list of new sons that come to David while he's in Jerusalem. Um, the, fir- um, the two that I, I want to draw your attention to, there's a number of sons listed, but the two I want to draw your attention to are Nathan and Solomon. Um, these are the only two that we mentioned with any sort of prominence later in Scripture. Nathan himself, uh, Jesus comes from the line of Nathan. Solomon will be um, the heir to David's throne. And both of them are Bathsheba's sons. This is the line God uses. But I don't want to jump ahead. We'll get there in a few chapters. Fourth thing that happens, the Philistines. They've kind of been out of sight, out of mind for a while now, for us, a few months. Um, in the book, a few chapters. Uh, the Philistines, if you'll remember, they, uh, they defeated Israel decisively, just terribly, um, in uh, defeating um, Jonathan and Saul, killing Jonathan and Saul. Um, and we have good reason to believe that they didn't just leave. They didn't just kind of walk off the field, walk out of Israel. They, they wanted to maintain control, taxation control, um, to keep Israel as a nation enslaved to them. But Israel's in complete and absolute disarray, so the Philistines don't really have to do much. Um, They're just around. But now David is consolidating power. David is establishing a capital city. Um, David keeps getting exalted. And as a result, the Philistines, again, as Tyre is a Gentile nation, not a member of the covenant people of God. The Philistines are a Gentile nation, not a member of the covenant people of God. And two completely different reactions. Tyre sees what God is doing and aligns their lives with it. Philistines go to war with it. There's two battle scenes, both interesting, both very interesting. In both, both cases, um, the Philistines gather in the Valley of Rephaim. The Valley of Rephaim is like, if you're in Jerusalem and you're standing on the wall, you can see it. It's like very, very close. A few miles, two to five miles away from Jerusalem. Um, so we're not talking like David heard rumors. He can see them. They're all gathered there. Um, secondly, the Valley of Rephaim means the Valley of Giants. So there's an interesting little twist there. They have gathered in the Valley of Giants to fight against the one who is the giant killer. I love what the Bible does. Valley of Giants to fight against the one who kills giants. In both battles, David inquires of the Lord. In the first battle, um, uh, for the first battle, God says, Go up and break out against the Philistines. I will surely give them into your hand. And then, God, uh, then David names the place where this happens, Baal Perazim, um, which means uh, trans- the translation of that is. The Lord who breaks out. The language there is is of water breaking through a dam. Um, What he 
announced took place in his victory over the Philistines is that God himself broke out against the Philistines. So you have the first, I want you to notice this, um, in verse 12, David acknowledges and sees that it's God who's establishing him. God who is making the kingdom great. Second, he goes to battle and defeats the Philistines, routs them, such that they leave behind their idols. David and his men gather it up and burn those idols. And still he looks at that battle and doesn't say, look at the battle I've won. He looks at that battle and says, it is God who broke out against them. Second battle, um, the Philistines gather again. They're, they're just not giving up. They've got to try to maintain some control over this land. And they come back to the Valley of Giants to fight against the one who kills giants. And again, David inquires of the Lord. And this time the Lord says, I don't want you to go up against them. Instead, I want you to go up behind them and I want you to wait I want you to wait until you hear my spirit, my wind, blowing in the tops of the trees that I go before you, I break out before you against the Philistines to destroy them. So David did exactly what God commanded him. And again, the Philistines are struck down from Geba to Gezer. So, let's look Jesus and what Jesus commands of us, what Jesus gives us in this text. First, the political. The Reformers, one example, a fantastic, very important book called Lex Rex. Um, It has a cool title too. It sounds like a heavy metal band. Um, Lex Rex, written by Samuel Rutherford. Uh, In this book, uh, Rutherford takes stories like this one and draws from it principles, principles that should guide and direct um, the, the nature of political leadership in any and all countries, who they are, what they're for. Um, and the principles that he draws out of here are two things. One, that God is the one who appoints kings. And two, um, and, and therefore God is the one who has authority over kings. And two, the king rules as a shepherd, a servant shepherd of the people. So, so two big ideas that conflict with two modern political ideas. First, the, the king is established by God. That flies in the face of a lot of modern political thinking, even a lot of modern um, newish Christian political thinking, um, which would say that the president, the judges, the senators, these, uh, these political officials, um, that their authority is derived merely by the, from the will of the people, and that's what they're answerable to. So if the people go crazy, if the people want unrighteousness, if the people want wickedness, if the people want evil, um, then it is the job of the magistrate to answer to the people. That comes in direct conflict with the fact that um, the, the, the authority of a king, the authority of a senator, the authority of a judge, the authority of a president is from God, and therefore God has authority over all of those officials. Not one United States official, not one Colorado state senator, Not one judge, whether in a county courtroom or the Supreme Court, 
will be able on the last day to stand before the God who gave them the very authority that they have and say to them, but the separation of church and state. Every office, political office, has a religious dimension to it. Which we have generally acknowledged historically, and that you have to put your hand on a Bible. Acknowledging, at least in that small way, that there is a, an authority higher than yours. So the ultimate authority is not the will of the people, whether righteous or unrighteous. It's God. But that authority is given for a particular purpose with particular constraints to do something very particular. And I don't want to jump to Romans 13 or other texts like that to try to um, preach another sermon. <laughs> but I'll just say that that authority is real, but that authority is constrained. That authority is given by God as a servant of God for the sake of shepherding the people. And that is the constraint. And there's my politics. Jesus Christ is Lord and every king, every senator, every judge Every elected official is elected and put in place in order to honor him and obey him and serve him within particular bounds established by covenants in order to serve all the people but to serve them with reference to and acknowledging the authority of God himself. It's crazy. But historically, this is what the Christian church has believed and taught and written about. Derived from many texts, but notably this text here. The story found in 1st and 2nd Samuel about the establishment of a government over Israel. And so, the political. This shouldn't just be highfalutin theology nice things that we believe. It should be things that shape how we vote, how we assess candidates for office, how we think about laws put in place or not put in place by the government. Is this law subject to God? Is this man or woman running for office? Are they conscious conscious of um, the fact that they serve under a God who rules over them, who establishes ultimate truth, ultimate good and evil. So here's not just a big, nice political theology. Here's something that practically matters, particularly this year. And it gets complicated and it gets messy and you have crazy people running for office. 
And we as the people of God living at this point in time ask the question, who serves under the authority of God and who will serve the people under the constraints that God himself has established for them? So that's second. Number two, what else should we see Christ commands of us here? It is vital. It's, It's glorious to me. How often and repeated throughout these chapters, these early chapters in particular of 2 Samuel, it tells us that David inquires of the Lord. You have years of patience. Years of self-control. Having been told, you will rule. You will be shepherd king to the people of Israel. Um, here's this promise given. Um, he, here's, um, he, he, he hears that promise and doesn't set out to just go his own way to figure it out and make it happen. He patiently waits, faithfully, sometimes messing things up a bit here or there. Um, but as you look at the life of David leading up to this moment, patiently doing the right thing that's directly in front of him over and over and over again. Um, Especially when you see that doing the, 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 the simple, the faithful, the just, the right thing seems to be keeping him from getting what God himself promised to him. And here he is right on the cusp. Like the crown Victory, establishing the nation, kicking out the enemies of God, right within his grasp. What does he do? He prays. And David inquired of the Lord. How many times do we think we know exactly what it is that needs to happen next for us? This is where we need to go. This is the job I need to take. This is the job I need to leave. This is the place I need to move. This is what needs to happen in my marriage. This is what needs to happen with our kids. Um, How often in the midst of that moment, trying to make stuff happen, Do we stop and inquire of the Lord? I I remember with our two oldest kids, us thinking like, we as your parents have a fantastic plan for your life. By the way, telling a 16-year-old that you have a fantastic plan for their life, um, well, it's an interesting experience. And, and here's the next step, and here's what you need to do, and here's where you need to get this, and here's what needs to happen in school, and here's what needs to happen in sports, um, and here's where you're going to go to college, and then here's the thing that you can do after college in order to make a living, and you'll live here, and it'll be right down the street, and it'll be great, and we'll see the grandkids, and you'll be happy, and living in Colorado, and living in Denver, and have a great degree, and a wonderful job, and you'll be able to provide for your mom and your dad um, in their old age, making our life even more comfortable and wonderful um, than it currently is, and here's the plan you should have, let's go forward and push, and I, um, 
And it's remarkable that I, I was struck, and similar thing has happened with our now youngest. Um, I, I was struck by the, the kindness of God um, to stop Jenny and I from making this great plan for our kids' lives and to get on our face and just inquire of the Lord. It wasn't that our plan was bad. But it was to say, what does the Lord want? What would the Lord have? And he surprised us in a number of different ways, in marvelous and glorious ways. He set out for them things that are way better than the ideas that we came up with. And so it's beautiful to me and precious to me and I think instructive to us in our life together as a church and as our life as husbands and wives and parents and singles and all the different jobs and vocations represented in this room, all the different courses of life that are taking place in this room to become the kind of people who live and learn from David to trust the promises of God, yes. To... to receive the words of God and seek diligently to trust in the goodness of God and the mercy of God and the promises of God and to do the things that God tells us to do faithfully over and over and over again every single day. Um, And when it comes to a point we're saying, man, what course should we take and how do we take hold of this next season or cause the next season to be what we want the season to be? Um, Not... To just grab it and do our best thoughts, but oh, that we would be a people who inquire of the Lord. Dads, do you pray for your sons? In the daily, in the faithful things, but also like, do you pray for where they'll go to college? Do you pray for the job they'll have? Do you pray for their future wife? Do you pray? Do you inquire of the Lord? All the while trusting his provision, his care. Third thing I want us to see. As the gospel comes, as the kingdom is established, as, and it's always established, there, there's a whole theology in the, in the root of this text which is vital and important. You see the establishment of Jerusalem, which is the establishment of Zion, which biblically speaking is the establishment of the city of God, the people of God, the, the, the manifestation of God's people, um, uh, God's presence among his people, the rule of God over all the earth established um, in a place, in, in, a, in a people called Jerusalem, called Zion. And you see that develops throughout the whole of the Old Testament and then comes to its ultimate fulfillment in the church itself. We are Zion, the place where God dwells, the city of the living God. And the idea here is that when God established his rule and his reign, his kingdom, in the midst of a people bound together um, under his reign, under his king, under his rule, there will always be two reactions from those outside of it. Two and only two reactions. There are those who will see that God is with them. You see this um, echoed in the New Testament as Paul says, um, when the church gathers, unbelievers are in your midst um, and they hear the word proclaimed and they say, surely God is among you. 
And they then contribute to, become a part of that living house, that wonderful city. There are those who will come from the outside and they will see the glory of Christ, the authority of Christ, the establishment of the kingdom, the manifestation of the kingdom in the church. And what will they do? They will go to war. To destroy it, to dismantle it, they will hate it. There are two and only two reactions to the beauty, the glory, the grace, and the rule of Christ. Surely God is among you and with you. Let me bow and worship Christ with you. Or you are a bigot, we hate you, we want to unravel everything that you believe about the world. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you don't believe in Christ. These are the reactions, the trajectories that your life will take. You will serve Christ or you will be Christ's enemy. You will know the glory and the love and the mercy and the forgiveness of God found in Jesus Christ or you will be his enemy. And so the call is always repent. Oh, forsake your sins. Jesus washes sinners. He forgives traitors. He has mercy on those who have spent a lifetime, whether they were conscious of it or not conscious of it, spent a lifetime hating him. He forgives sinners. He forgives those who hate him. He forgives those who make war on him and his people. He receives you and, and exercises mercy and grace for all who will repent of their sins, who all who will forsake the authority over their own lives and bow the knee to King Jesus, receiving his glory, his grace, his mercy, and his forgiveness. Oh, as you see Christ exalted, as you see him sung of, as you see his reign established in churches, in families, in individual lives, Oh, that you would worship him. It's notable in this text, this language of perazim, Baal perazim, the Lord who breaks out. This happened, this battle, Baal perazim, in this valley of giants takes place um, within sight where God himself pours out his spirit, breaks out on his people at Pentecost, from whom they are sent to every nation of the earth to see the kingdom of God established and honored and manifest 
everywhere. So may you be faithful and diligent in all that God has given you to do today. And may we be a people trusting in the promises of God, believing that God will not break a single one of them. May we be a people who are constantly inquiring of the Lord, what would you have us do? Let's pray, prepare for communion.